Well, good morning, good morning. How we doing? Good? Good? Awesome, awesome. Hey, if you need, before I get started, if you need notes or a Bible or a pencil, we got ushers who will come down the rows and take care of you. Just put your hand up and they will make sure you get what you need. I'm Peter. I'm on staff here at Hyde as a church. Usually I do uh, mostly high school stuff, and so if you hear a little bit more whispers coming from the back, it's because our high school students are in with us today, really enjoying my message and listening intently. Right, high school? Yeah? Good? Good. All right. Um, We're continuing going through this series in Compassion. We kicked it off uh, two Sundays ago, and so Pastor Tom kind of kicked off the series, and we talked about God's compassion, and we talked about what that looks like, um, and largely we can, we can all get on board with that because we talked about God's compassion. It's mostly a biblical and philosophical, philosophical discussion about his compassion. And so for most of us in this room who are believers, those of us who have committed our lives to Christ already, then we can, we can largely get on board with one of God's attributes, with compassion. And so last week then, Pastor Kurt came, and Pastor Kurt talked a little bit about kind of a response that we should have to compassion, specifically for those who are poor. And so he really started to press into us that there are poor all around us. But even then, there's some of us in this room who think about those people who are in our world who aren't actually needy. And so you think about your oikos, you think about those people, and you're like, well, no one's actually poor, no one's actually needy, and I don't really encounter the poor or needy on a regular basis, and so I'm good. I don't have to respond to that message. Well, this week we're going to be presenting a message to you, um, and it's compassion for the lost. And so everybody should be able to respond to this message who calls themselves a believer. Because everybody has what we call at High Desert Church an oikos. Oikos is a little Greek word that means household. It is the lens by which we view and do everything at High Desert Church. This is the lens through which we see world change in our community. This is the lens through which we see change throughout the world. Through this principle called oikos. Now, if you've been here for a long time, like I said, it's, it's, it, it means household. But Oikos is specifically 8 to 15 people that God has both strategically and supernaturally placed in your life so you can have an impact on them for the kingdom of God. So in all of our Oikos, we should have somebody who is lost. And so today we are going to be talking about having compassion for those people. And the text today, while at first glance it's going to look encouraging. We take the second part of the text that we'll be looking at, which is Matthew 9, by the way. So if you want to flip open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be camping in there for the majority of the message. But it looks like mostly an encouraging text. They take the hill type of text. But as we continue to dig deeper into that text, we should feel a weight and a burden to respond to the lost in some way. And I'm going to be completely and totally honest, as I was Working through this message this week, I don't think I have been more convicted by a message that I have put together in my entire life because the text just burdened me and convicted me for where I am in my life. So as I am talking this morning to all of you, know that I am not projecting anything on you. We are talking about us as the body of Christ, us as believers who need to respond to God in a specific way. So um, this week, like I said, Um, we're going to be talking about compassion for the lost. And in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at a section of Scripture where Jesus shows incredible compassion numerous times to people who have afflictions that have manifested themselves in physical ways. 
Now, we're going we're gonna to look at these physical afflictions, but what we're going to do is we're going to kind of flip those things on their head and talk about, spiritually speaking, the people in our lives, how those physical afflictions can also manifest themselves in a spiritual way to those people who are in our oikos. So bear that in mind. But we're going to start all the way at the bottom of that chapter, starting in verse 35. It says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And we tend to hone in on verse 37 as a take-the-hill type of moment as believers. Like, we're ready to go. Let's go into the field. But we tend to ignore the first half of this text. Where it talks about that God had compassion on them. These people with sheep who are sheep without a shepherd. These people who are lost. And it's our responsibility then to introduce them to Jesus. So it's obvious that Jesus has compassion on these people. Um, as in towns and villages. But, but what is it that has led him to this point where Matthew writes down that, that all of these afflictions prior, all of these spiritually and physically lost people, and one thing that we're going to come to realize in the midst of the text and Jesus' compassion for the lost is that lost people are dead. And so if we go back to the very top of, of uh, that section in Scripture in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18, it's going to say this. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came, and we, we know from the other, some of the other Gospels, this, this leader's name is a, a guy by the name of Jairus. But a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and put your hand on her and she'll live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Skip down to verse 23. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. And if we wanted to, we could spend all of our time kind of in this, in this text and unfolding this text. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at four stories real quickly and pull a little bit out of these, these physical attributes, like I said, and apply them to the spiritual lives of those people who are lost. And then we'll go into our response and what it should be. But the first thing that we need to point out is the obvious, is this girl was dead. Verse 18 makes that very, very clear. This girl was indeed dead. But this man had an incredible faith. And he went to Jesus and asked him to come and heal his daughter. This man who's a leader in the synagogue is probably putting his reputation, probably putting his career on the line. But what we see is a desperate father kneel before Jesus, putting his last, last ounce of hope in Christ and in faith, pleads with Jesus to come heal his daughter. He would have known who Jesus was being a leader in the synagogue, knowing about Jesus' teaching, knowing about his miracles, his healings, all of that stuff. But regardless of his career, he reaches out in a desperation, reaches out in faith and desperation to the, the last the, the last opportunity he may have to see his daughter living. 
something that's interesting to note as we go through all of these passages. We're going to see a common theme that Jesus always responds to faith. And so as this man comes and asks Jesus to heal his daughter, he responds because of this man's faith. Now this man whose daughter was, was physically lost decided he would petition the Lord to see if he could breathe life back into her. He actively petitioned God on his daughter's behalf. So as you're thinking about the people who are in your 8 to 15, the people who are in your oikos, one of my questions to you this morning is who is it that you are actively petitioning for? Who in your oikos are you actively going before the Lord and and petitioning Him for? Who in your family is spiritually dead and simply needs Jesus to come and intervene? Things get a little bit more interesting as we, we jump down to verse 23. And we can see in that verse that there are these people whose job it was to cry and mourn when people passed away. This was a cultural norm at the time. These weren't people just trying to make a quick buck or anything like that. This was a cultural norm, so people would be grieved well. Specifically, younger kids would be grieved well. And so they're there, and Jesus and Jairus comes up. And my guess is, my assumption is, is that Jairus wasn't the guy who who hired these people, these professional mourners, to come in. Because a guy who is trying to save his daughter's life hasn't started making funeral arrangements yet, usually. And so somebody else decided that it was time to to bring in these professional mourners. This was a cultural norm. This is something that was normal for when somebody passed away, for when somebody died. And then Jesus walks in with Jairus behind him. He kicks out all of the mourners and all these people who were attempting to do good, to apply the societal societal norms of the day at the appropriate time. He kicks them out, and then they mock him. Now, why would they mock Jesus? Because Jesus says in that verse that this girl is not yet dead. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. Now, these people are around death all the time. These professional mourners are around death all the time. They're like, no, he's dead you don't know what you're talking about. And so Jesus kicks him out, comes back in, and all he does is hold this girl's hand and she wakes up. How often is it that we do our best Dr. Phil impression and try to place societal norms onto people, try to say things, say platitudes to people who are going through something hard in their life simply because that's what we're supposed to do? where someone's going through a divorce and you offer them some, some vague advice about how, well, you know, it's, it only, it's, it's only hard for a season and time heals all wounds and Jesus works and, or God works in strange and mysterious ways and all of these things that we just offer up as platitudes to make them feel better. Instead of simply introducing them to Jesus and setting up a meeting with these people to Jesus... We can't fix these people. We can't fix people who are spiritually lost. We can't fix people who are physically lost, who are spiritually dead. Our responsibility is to set up a date between them and Jesus. That's our responsibility. The next thing that we're going to see from the lost that they lost people are drained of hope. Now, if you go back to the middle, I, I skipped a little piece of scripture there. It's 920 to 22. It says this. And if you've been around 
church for, for any amount of time, you have probably heard most of these stories. But verse 20 goes like this. Just, just when a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the, touched the edge of his cloak, she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Jesus responds to faith. But as we look at the life of this woman, she was shunned by her community. She would have been deemed unclean. And because of that, she's a societal outcast. This woman could have stayed home when she heard about Jesus. She had many reasons to be discouraged, many reasons to be hopeless. The scriptures state that she had been sick for 12 years and she had suffered many things. She'd suffered many things from physicians and wasn't that better. In fact, she was worse. She'd spent everything she had on doctors. There was still no cure. She probably felt weak. She probably felt tired. She probably didn't want to fight through the crowds to get to Jesus because as these crowds are following along and want to hear Jesus' teaching and following close to Jesus, she would have had to cover her mouth and say, unclean, unclean, as she was walking by so people wouldn't touch her because if people touched her, then they in turn would also be unclean. This would have been a difficult thing for this lady to do to seek out Jesus, to get close enough to Jesus to touch him. Maybe she felt like God was punishing her for some sin that she had in her life. Maybe she felt like she was cursed with this disease. But when she heard of Jesus, she went looking for him. And again, we see a person who was literally bleeding out, the lifeblood leaving her body, slowly killing her, and she simply weighed her options. And after 12 years, the only thing she hadn't yet tried was to fully pursue Jesus. She had embraced choices she thought would make her whole and complete. But those options only made her affliction worse. Ultimately, she needed Christ to intervene for her. The lost have made decisions in their life that that made them think that it would heal them in some way. Heal them of loneliness, of sadness, of anger frustration, heartbreak, fill in the blank. Whatever affliction that there is, whatever heartache that there is, whatever healing that needs to be done, only to find themselves in the midst of some type of self-medication or seeking an identity where simply our identities don't belong so they could feel better. Ultimately, they're not cured though. The only thing that can indeed heal the lost is again, Jesus but we have to be willing to see the things of Christ. The lost have to be willing to see the things of Christ. The only problem with that is that lost people are often blind to truth. And so if you go then now to 27 to 31, it says, Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, calling out, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, again, Jesus' response to faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. These blind men came, they had faith in Christ, and Christ healed them. He intervened on their behalf. It's another instance of Jesus meeting a physical need because of a faith that was had. 
the spiritual flip side to this is oftentimes those who are lost are blind to the truth that surrounds them. Oftentimes they're blind to the truth that can oftentimes be sitting right in front of them. They're aching for reconciliation. The lost want to know what it is that's going to make them aware of their true surroundings, but apart from the truth of Christ and his word, nothing is going to open their eyes. Nothing will open the eyes of the lost except the word of Christ. They seek but aren't able to find a Messiah, and that's our responsibility to be able to introduce them to their Messiah. But sometimes, even when we are able to get them to church, to get the lost in a conversation, oftentimes the lost can feel like they are too far gone, too far removed from grace, because lost people are bound by sin. Continuing down into verse 32. It says, While they were going going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Evil was literally binding this guy up. He couldn't even function properly. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Lost people are controlled and bound and thwarted by an enemy, thwarted by an evil that seeks to take away their freedom, seeks to take away their humanity. That's exactly what's happening in this section of Scripture. The evil in this world has come and bound this man from speaking, impairing him from being able to function in the way that God had intended him to function in the first place. Sin wraps us up. It binds us up. Our lost friends, our lost family encounter the same things as they are lost. They encounter being so wrapped up in sin that they're no longer able to function in the way that God had intended us to function in the first place. And some of these things are overt. Those people who are murderous, the evil who prey on those who are defenseless. We can see those relatively easily. But some of these sins have bound those that we love, these sins that are hidden from view oftentimes, lies that are seemingly harmless, greed that has disguised itself as work ethic, a late-night pornography addiction that has disguised itself with, I'm not tired enough for bed yet. These are the things that bind us up and enable or, or disable us from being able to function properly. Evil in this world has bound up those we love. And we sit on our laurels waiting for somebody else to do something about it. If we believe what it is that we say we believe, then this should be a no-brainer for us to bring people to the feet of Jesus. To introduce them to the Savior we've already found. The lost in our world face these circumstances every single day. They're beaten up by a world that has no ability to meet their needs. And it's our job to reach into their lives with the only hope they can answer all of these needs, Jesus Christ. And Jesus responds with the verse to all four of these stories that we just outlined, these quick little stories that we just outlined. Jesus responds to these. Back with that first verse that I opened with, starting in verse 35, where it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, when he saw the dead, 
when he saw the hemorrhaging, when he saw the blind, when he saw the mute, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We don't tell you these stories every single week to remind you that there are lost people. You know there are lost people. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you should have an inherent understanding that there are people who are lost in this world because they simply don't have a relationship with Jesus as well. This message isn't a reminder about that. What we want you to understand, what I want you to understand this morning, what I wish I understood better this morning, is we tell you these stories because we need to begin to recognize the lost people need Jesus and we should be so ridiculously upset about the fact that they've not yet found eternal hope and life that he offers that we would be willing to do literally anything in order to introduce lost people to who Jesus is. That's why we're talking about that this morning. You know there's lost people. We need to understand that it's our responsibility then to respond to the fact that there are lost people. The Apostle Paul also really, really lost at one point. Right? We had this Jewish leader. All he wanted to do was stamp out this new movement called the Way, the early church, that was sparked by the resurrection of Christ. He wanted to seek out Christians and and have them killed. Like that's who Paul was. And then something interesting happened. Paul had an encounter with the Savior of the world. And his life was completely and totally flipped inside out. His heart that was once hard and calloused and not receptive to those things that he should have been receptive to, his heart gets softened big time. And we can see his heart change in Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bible, flip over real quick to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 1. You want to see somebody who has a heartbeat for the lost, heartbeat for the people in his world? Check this out. Starting in verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, what I'm about to say is the truth. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And verse 3 is what blows my mind. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel, Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever and praised, or forever praised. Amen. Paul's heart hurts. And in verse 3, he says, I will literally sacrifice my salvation so the people who I spend the lion's share of my time with, those people that I love, and that I care about will come to know who Jesus is. I will gladly spend eternity in hell if that means everybody else in my world will come to know Jesus. You talk about having a heart for the lost. You talk about having compassion for the lost. And Paul's heart just hurt. And Paul was frustrated with them too. He was frustrated with some of these people who were the lost. He actually refers to them as the Israel people, the Israelites, right? The people of Israel. And what he's doing is hearkening back all the way to the Old Testament. And he's saying, like, these people of any people should know who Jesus is. 
They had the opportunity to know who Jesus is. Every opportunity. You may feel that way about some of the people in your oikos. They're like, man, they're around church people all the time. They know I go to church. My whole family goes to church. How come these people aren't more interested in the things of God? And maybe you're frustrated. But being frustrated isn't enough. You have to have compassion. Your heart has to be so soft to those people that you have an an incredible anguish, a weight upon your heart. His heart hurts so badly for them. He has great sorrow and unceasing anguish is what it says. Most of you know that I'm a dad to five boys. If you don't know, um, I am a dad to five boys. And I love them, and they're full of life, and they're full of energy. And if it, it is my responsibility. I feel a burden for those five boys to, if, if they do nothing else in their life, to come to know Jesus. I have that type of burden, so much so, that Sarah and I are systematically putting things into our marriage, systematically putting things into their schedules, to drip that love of Jesus to them on a regular basis. So as they come to understand who Jesus is, it'll be a a natural thing. It'll be a natural understanding of who Christ is because mom and dad did it in the first place. So systematically putting things into place like, hey, we're going to make sure that we are up and reading our Bibles in the morning. And so our kids aren't afraid of Scripture, aren't afraid of the book that's sitting on most of our shelves getting dusty because we're intimidated by it. We want our kids to understand that we should be in the Word. Or at nighttime, when we're saying our prayers with them or doing devotions with them and allowing them to pray and teaching them to thank God for the things that they have, be grateful for the things they have and pray for those who are sick and pray for those who don't yet know Jesus. We are systematically putting things into our lives structures into our lives so those five little kids that I'm responsible for will come to know who Jesus is. The interesting thing about that though is that burden that I have for my kids is a burden because they're my kids. Right? Anybody in here who claims that Jesus Christ is their Savior should have the same burden for their kids to know that this is the most important thing in their lives. It should be, I want this to be, the most important thing in their lives. All of us would respond so. This is the type of burden that Paul is carrying in Romans 9. The burden for the people who are in his oikos. The burden for the people that he spends the lion's share of his time with. His heart hurts and is heavy for them. Like a mother who has lost a child, Paul's heart is broken over the condition of the lost. He lives under the constant burden of the reality that they are headed to hell. The fact that they're perishing lies on his shoulders like a weight that is nearly impossible to carry. That's the type of burden we should all have for the lost. We're surrounded by millions of people who are headed to hell and often we act like we don't care. We care that they're lost. I really hope they're found someday. We live our lives. We attend our worship services. We go to our small groups. We read our Bibles. And ultimately, we don't do anything a part of that. And that's what makes this message a difficult message. 
It's because we're really good at doing the things that, that society says you're supposed to do to be a good Christian. And then all of a sudden we bring up this idea of having compassion for those who don't yet know Jesus. And we find that we are blindsided by a whole side of this Christian faith that we haven't even yet engaged. And that's why it hurts my heart so bad and convicted me so bad as I was going through this. And the questions are, are simple. Is it, when is the last time you were burdened to pray for somebody who was lost? When was the last time that God woke you up in the middle of the night with somebody's name on your heart so you could pray for that person? So you could get on your knees next to your bed and pray that they would know their Savior. When was the last time that it moved you to think that men and women were going to hell? Sadly, most of us aren't affected by the condition of the lost. And before we leave here today, we should check the condition of our hearts and pray that God would put a passion inside of us. That we couldn't help but tell people about who he is. A passion that would be willing to, that we would be willing to extend beyond fear, beyond doubt. Because as we stand up here and as we start talking about this idea of sharing who Jesus is, fear and doubt creep in all the time. We're scared that we're going to rock the boat. We're afraid that like at Thanksgiving, when you see your family once a year who don't yet know Jesus, if you bring up Jesus, they're not going to want to come back to Thanksgiving next year. Or they're not going to want to sit next to the weirdo who keeps talking about Jesus all the time. Or the doubt that creeps in that we are so nervous that we're going to misrepresent who Jesus is that we would rather not talk about Jesus at all because we're scared we're going to bumble over our words. And so we doubt who we are. Scripture's very clear about fear and doubt. Proverbs 29.25 regarding fear. The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. Snare. Not sneer. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And going on to doubt in Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in yourself. Our concern shouldn't be for the perception of men. It should be for those who are lost and in need of a Savior. Because who doesn't have compassion for someone who's dying? Right? It's easy to read these things, these stories, and you're like, well, of course they have compassion for these people. This little girl is dying. Who doesn't reach out to a person with hope when they're hopeless? Of course we're going to help this person. She was sick and hemorrhaging. We're going to do everything we can and have compassion for her. Or who isn't extra careful when there is a blind person approaching them? Of course we're going to have compassion for them. Or who isn't concerned for the person who is bound up and controlled by something else or someone else? It's easy when we look at those stories to think, oh, those are physical afflictions. It would be easy for me to have compassion on those people with physical afflictions. But how much more important is that is it for us to recognize that we need to have compassion for those people who have spiritual afflictions, who are spiritually handicapped, who are spiritually dying, who are spiritually blind. Oswald Chambers says this, So long as there is a human being who does not know Jesus Christ, I am his debtor to serve him until he does. As long as there is a person breathing on this earth 
who does not yet know who Jesus is. Any believer is his debtor until he does. That's how serious we should be taking this. That's the compassion that we should have for people. And we can't reach out across the dinner table to talk to people who are going to love us even though they don't like us. That's how seriously we should be taking this. About six years ago, I was a, uh, a youth pastor up at a place near Fresno. And uh, there was this couple by the name of Bill and Sue Adkins. Bill was kind of crazy. I called him uh, Wild Bill. Um, he, uh, like, in the first three weeks that I met him, he invited me to go rattlesnake hunting with him. Like, not a normal person. If you rattlesnake hunt in here, you're not a normal person, okay? So... But Bill, I mean, that's just who Bill was. He was all like five foot six, like a, like a bad Santa Claus impression, like a real short, bad Santa Claus, but like real full white beard, white hair, just wild Bill. I walked into his house and he has this big elk carcass on his wall. I was like, Bill, that's the biggest elk carcass I've ever seen. I'm like, it's the only elk carcass I've ever seen, but it's huge. Tell me the story. And he's like, oh yeah, I took that down with a bow from however many yards. I was like, you're crazy. I love you. Um, and so... Bill and his wife, Sue, who also, Sue, knew how to cook rattlesnake and make it appetizing, by the way, because if you have a husband who hunts rattlesnake, you better know how to cook it. Um, but Sue also was just incredible, incredibly compassionate, an incredible couple, and I took them with me on a mission trip. We were doing domestic mission trips at the time, so we actually drove to, uh, to Missouri. Now, if you're from the South, I'm not going to say Missouri because it's pronounced Missouri, okay? So I had a lady come up and argue with me last night that I pronounced Missouri wrong. I was like, great. Glad you got that from my message. Um, so <laughs> we, so we were going, we were driving to Missouri, um, and, uh, we stopped at a waffle house cause we were driving through the South and you have to stop at a, like a waffle house. And so I'm sitting across from Bill and we start talking about kind of our next leg of the mission trip, making sure this is like, this is before everybody had iPhones and just said, all right, I'll meet you there. Like we're caravanning the whole way. And, um, so we're talking about this, and all of a sudden the waitress comes up. And I have no clue how it happened. But Bill all of a sudden starts sharing Jesus with this lady. I was like, Bill, we were ordering waffles. I'm like, what are you doing? No, you can't start talking about Jesus. And he has this long conversation with her. And, and like, like, not just, hey, you should come to church, but like a meaningful conversation. At the very end, like, I ate waffles by myself because Bill was off, like, talking to this waitress about Jesus. And, like, at the end, we see Bill and Sue over to the side, like, praying t- for, for, this, for this lady. I don't know if she came to salvation or not, but, but the compassion that Bill showed because she was lost was incredible. He couldn't help but allow it to overflow from his heart. Sue is the same way on that same trip as about Wednesday night. And Wednesday night on every single youth event ever when kids are tired and like they talk about Jesus, people just like get weepy and like tears are flowing, right? Um, and, uh, and all of our girls are like weepy and sad and all this stuff. I was like, I don't know what to do. It's a bunch of girls. I don't know how to do that. Um, and so Sue just steps in and she doesn't offer platitudes. She doesn't offer just vague advice. She opens the word of God and directs these girls to the feet of Jesus. Says, what is Jesus going to say about this? It's a sort of compassion that we need to have, a sort of compassion that should naturally flow out of who we are, naturally flow out of our relationship with Jesus. Because imagine what would happen if our 8 to 15 people who are both supernaturally and strategically placed into our lives were prayed for. 
if those people were thought of, if those people were sought after, because we as Christians decided to get out of our own way, decided to get out of our own comfort. Because this isn't about us becoming better people. Church isn't about us becoming better people. It's about caring for others so deeply that we decide to share Christ with them like someone did for us. Your last fill in the blank, and I'm going to tell it to you, but you need to promise you're not going to pack up like the other two services did, okay? Because I got another few minutes to unpack some stuff and I'm banking on your maturity right now, okay? Good? Okay, your last fill in the blank. It's going to read, as were we. Now you'll notice there's an ellipsis at the front of that, of that point. And if you look at all the rest of your points, there's an ellipsis at the back half. And the reason I share that is because all of your points should now read, lost people are dead, as were we. Lost people are drained of hope, as were we. Lost people are blind to truth, as were we. Lost people are bound by sin, as were we. Because at some point, you were merely a lost piece of somebody's oikos. And they cared enough to pray for you. They cared enough to intervene for you. They cared enough to to go to the feet of Jesus and just pray that someday you would come to recognize that Jesus is your Messiah. And for some of you in in your room, like that was your mom and dad. For me, like eight years old, bottom bunk, I'm praying with mom and dad to accept Jesus into my heart. But for others of you, there were people who went out of their way, who had enough compassion for you to introduce you to who Jesus is. They cared enough to know that you were spiritually dead or you were hopeless or you were blind or you were bound. And they knew the good news of Christ and were compassionate enough to pass it along to you. They didn't know all the answers. They simply set up a meeting between you and Jesus. If you wait until you have enough courage if you wait until you feel like you are prepared enough to present the gospel flawlessly, you are going to have a lost opportunity. And those people will also remain lost until somebody else steps up to the plate. If we as the church stood up, if we as a church got out of our own way, if we as a church got out of our own comfort zone and actually developed a heart of compassion for those people who were lost, it would be incredibly difficult for people in the Victor Valley to go to hell. And all of this should beg the question, then how? Okay, I understand there's lost people. I understand I should have compassion for lost people. How then do I present the gospel to these people? How do I share the good news of Christ with these people who are lost? The first question is, how do we develop a heart for the lost? The answer to that is simple. You said it in Sunday school every single week. It's Jesus. Fall further and further in love with him because until you have a real relationship with Jesus, you're not going to be willing willing to share him with anybody. You have to continue to fall in love with him. The next thing is, is be prepared. Pastor Kurt last week in our small group questions, he actually talked about being prepared for those people um, who are poor among us. That strategy doesn't change. You're like, well, how do I get prepared? Two ways. One, for those of you guys who are in small groups this week, 
that the discussion is going to revolve around how to share your faith with other people. It's going to be the cliff notes, real brief version of our sharing your Christian faith life path that we're offering. And that's the other thing that you should do. If you're like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know how to share my faith with others. Our life path for sharing your faith starts next week. Come get prepared. Get equipped. Figure out how it is that you can share your faith with other people without feeling awkward, without being afraid. Come and join us with that. And the last one you have to do is seek opportunities. They are all around you. Your opportunities are endless. Bill was ordering waffles and turned it into a conversation about Jesus. There are people who have been sitting next to you for the last 10 years in the same job that you are yet to broach the subject with. There are people sitting across from you at your dinner table. There are people sitting on the bench next to you on your slow-pitch softball team on Tuesdays. There are opportunities everywhere. You have to seek out those opportunities and just go for it. Go for it where? In faith. Why? Because Jesus responds to faith. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a hard hard message for me because Lord even as I'm up here talking about how we should respond and talking about how how we should respond to developing a heart of compassion how we should respond to people who are lost Father I I pray that you would just develop those hearts in us and God I pray that even as there are people here who as they hear this message realize that, that I am lost still, and I want, I want to be part of something that is bigger than myself. I want, I want a, a Savior. I want that Messiah that I haven't said yes to yet. God, I pray with everybody's, everybody's head still bowed and eyes still closed that they would say the ABCs. That, number one, A, they would admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. They would recognize that everybody is in need of a Savior. Everybody has sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. That B, they would believe that Jesus went to the cross showing the ultimate act of compassion for the lost. Taking the nails in his hands. Dying an excruciating death. But raising again on the third day so he would be reunited with God forever. And C, choose to follow him. And God, as much as that is a prayer for a, a new believer, Lord... The choose aspect of it needs to be a prayer for every single one of us who calls Jesus our Savior. Because, Father, we recognize that as we choose to follow you, your love should be reflected to those who are around us. Father, I pray that our hearts would be developed into compassionate hearts for those who don't yet know you. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.